Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this fine mid-May day where no one is accusing us of trying to run our show from the safety of our basements, mostly because none of us have basements. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my humble abode in Washington, D.C. And today I am thrilled as always to be joined by David Katniss, my fellow correspondent on the McClatchy political desk and someone whose hair, like mine, is approximately twice as long as normal right now. Dave, welcome. <laughs> it is a delight to be with you, Alex. <laughs> And we are welcoming back to the show Adam Walner, Clatchy DC's political editor. Adam, I was going to make a joke here about your beard, but sometime between the last time I saw you and now you decided to shave your beard. Why don't you give a little insight to the, the listeners why you decided to, to get rid of your playoff beard? Well, mostly because I saw this this wisecrack coming from a mile oh, away, so I decided to, to get out in front of it and just shave it off beforehand. I got to say, I'm, um, I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed that you, you yeah, saw it. You saw yeah, it coming. It was just to spite you and your, <laughs> your, your preparation for the podcast. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it wouldn't be the first time. All right, coming up, we are going to check in on the battle for the Senate. It is definitely the undercard fight this year, but one that has gained increasing attention in recent months as Republicans try to retain their three-seat majority while defending a half dozen or more prime opportunities for Democratic takeover. But first, you've probably heard the criticism by now because a lot of Democrats aren't bashful about giving their presidential nominee a few very public pointers. Joe Biden, they say, is hiding in his basement not doing enough campaigning on the internet, not raising enough money, not listening to good advice, and just generally making Democrats nervous that he's blowing what they consider a very winnable race. But here's the thing. Biden's heard this before. We in the chattering class, myself included, of course, spent months bashing his primary campaign and earlier this year all but declared his quest for the presidency done and dead. And yet the vice president is still here, the undisputed winner of the Democratic primary and leading the early polls against Donald Trump. It's not a huge lead, but it is a consistent one. So let's start the discussion this way, Dave. Why do you think Democrats are so convinced that Biden's running a lackluster effort of being so wrong about him just a few months ago? Are they nervous or do they have a point? So I think there's a couple things. I think the first is that the trauma of 2016 continues to linger and continues to sort of sit in the heads of Democrats, no matter how many polls they see, no matter what type of a political environment is out there, no matter what type of mistakes uh, you know President Trump is making, they're not going to believe that they they've completely got this until you know Trump walks out of the Oval Office. So you know, there's always going to be second guessing about everything he's able to do, the capacity he has for fundraising, digital advertising, messaging. And then I think the second part of it, frankly, is that we're sort of in a different odd time. Obviously, one is a country where we're distracted by the pandemic, and that is at the foremost of everyone's minds. But also, just, you know, in, in the campaign calendar, we sort of expected this primary to go a lot longer. I think we probably anticipated we'd still be covering a pretty competitive Democratic primary at this point in time. I think dreading. Dreading for, might be the right word. Dreading covering yeah. it for, for five months Yeah, I mean, this was supposed stop. to be the throwdown, the, the, the most epic primary we've ever seen. And, you know, it, it sort of resolved in a whimper. And for two months, I think there's a bit of a content hole, which means you've got operatives and journalists and pundits out there looking for new content. And that sort of means examining the Biden operation and sort of picking at it. And I think we're seeing that even in the Democratic operative class. I mean, there's only so many things you can say about Trump. So eventually you have to turn yourself inward 
And I think that fills the space for a while and probably will until the summer, until you get more news, like a vice presidential pick and conventions, then you really get in the general election. I think this is going to continue sort of questioning Biden. Is he doing the right thing? Is he doing enough? Does he have enough money? Does he have enough staff? I think that we're going to see weeks and maybe months of it. I know presidential campaigns are never short on unsolicited advice. Right. Right. Regardless of who you are and and what campaign. It does feel a little bit different to me this time around, like that people are being a little bit more upfront and a little bit more vocal. I mean, David Axelrod and David Plouffe writing that joint op-ed in the New York Times, really laying out all kinds of solutions or suggestions for how Joe Biden's campaign can can perform on the internet and perform online and reach out to voters like that, I think really stands out as the starkest example. You know, I, I, I want to say here in, in a sense of how maybe Joe Biden's campaign is starting to react to this. I think maybe, maybe the quote of the campaign so far from Jen O'Malley Dillon, who is Joe Biden's newly installed campaign manager herself, is subject of a lot of speculation when you gab with Democrats about the Biden campaign. Uh, quote, voters don't give a shit about where he's filming from, she told the Associated Press this week. Just a, maybe a, a sense of how the Biden campaign is starting to internalize some of this criticism and in turn is telling Democrats to back off. Adam, I mean, a big part of this from the Biden world or from Democrats adjusting is really reassessing the campaign, whether or not they were good or they were lucky, right? Did they really run a good campaign during the primary and deserve some breathing room? Or were they just lucky that Jim Clyburn, despite everything that had happened, still really believed in Joe Biden? I mean, that's a difficult question to, to sort out, I know, but that seems like what a lot of this is, is rooted in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think, you know, anyone would say that Joe Biden necessarily, you know, ran the best nuts and bolts campaign during the Democratic primary. But I think, you know, one of the lessons that we learned is that, you know, maybe, maybe that doesn't actually matter all that much. Like, obviously, you know, campaigns can make a difference at the margins, but, you know, between, you know, the goodwill of support he had— with, you know, voters in South Carolina, with, you know, just the black community and a lot of older, you know, white, moderate voters, you know, that was enough. And, you know, being able to kind of ride that wave out of South Carolina into Super Tuesday, right? It's not, you know, his, you know it's not like he had a, this, you know, great campaign infrastructure in place in California or these other big Super Tuesday states. He just kind of rode that wave of momentum and free media. And now all of a sudden you get to a general election campaign. And yeah, his staff is a lot smaller than, you know, a, a Democratic nominee's staff would be at this point. He's not able to go out and do the usual campaigning that you would be doing at, at sort of this in-between time uh, in between the primary and the, the general election when you're sort of trying to unify the party ahead of the convention. So, you know, I think, you know, to a lot of outsiders, you know, a lot of Democrats are looking and they say, what is Joe Biden actually doing on a day-to-day basis? And And the reality is, you know, not all that much. And it's in large part because he can't do that much, right? I mean, he's confined to his basement because of the coronavirus pandemic. He's able to do some of these virtual events, and, and he has ramped those up these past couple of weeks. Both he and, and uh, his wife, Jill Biden, and a lot of his surrogates are starting to do a lot more targeted events, um, you know, virtual events in specific battleground states, which I think is something that a lot of Democrats were pushing for him to do, not to to lose sight of those key swing states, even though, you know, he may have, have a lead in the national polls, because we all saw how that, you know, didn't quite work out for Democrats in 2016. But, you know, I think it also just gets gets down to that, you know, if this is, you know, a referendum on Trump and his handling of the pandemic and his handling of the economy, you know, maybe Biden doesn't really have to do all that much. But I think what Democrats are kind of preparing for is the eventuality that, you know, when Trump really starts to unload on Biden and Dave reported on this a little bit last week that, you know, they're really going to start, you know, that ad blitz, all of that, that cash that they've had stocked up over these past few years are finally going to put it to use. And if it becomes more of a choice election between, you know, Trump or Biden, that's when, you know, you kind of need a strong campaign to come in and make that contrast. And uh, I think, you know, Democrats are nervous. They 
haven't seen that yet. But on the other hand, it is only the middle of May. We still have a little more than five months to go before November. And I think, you know, the Biden campaign would point out, hey, you know, we're, we're winning right now. We won this primary, you know, running the campaign our way. We're ahead in the national polls. We're ahead in all of these battleground state polls. And it's kind of, you know, what else, you know, do you want us to do at this point? But I think Democrats, they're just preparing for that eventuality at this point that like this current dynamic that we're living in isn't necessarily going to be the one that's going to exist in July or August and September. And that's when that sort of that groundwork needs to be laid from the campaign. I got to be honest, Dave, when I talk with Democrats, some of them who are in communication with the Biden campaign, some are just old Democratic strategists who like to, to sit around and take pot shots at people. I honestly, like, I haven't found a lot of people who have positive things to say, right, about their campaign. It's usually not a literal roll of the eyes because, of course, these, you know, uh, talks that I'm having with people are all on the phone these days. But um, <laughs> basically the, the, the virtual equivalent that they don't think they're staffing up quickly enough, despite the fact that the primary ended early, that he hasn't been creative enough about how he tries to reach people online. I mean, let's just stay with that just for a moment. I mean, what are the legitimate critiques right now? How how much resonance do those have? Well, look, leave it to operatives to believe that they're the most important thing is in a Democratic campaign or a Republican campaign. I mean, look, we go back to 2016. I mean, Hillary Clinton had the greatest talent in the world. She had all the money in the world. Who was smarter than her staff? Everyone made fun of the Trump campaign, Corey Lewandowski. I mean, these people didn't run anything, let alone a presidential campaign. Did it matter? No, because in the end, two things matter most. The candidate the candidate matters, obviously, and then the fundamentals, mm-hmm. right? The fundamentals of the economy, of the political situation, of a person's favorable feelings toward them. I mean, whether they run two digital ads in, in May or if they have got six figures behind it or, or seven, I mean, this, this really gets into the granular sort of insider DC Beltway stuff. But, but to be fair, I mean, Adam made this point. The Biden campaign wasn't the best campaign, but it didn't have to be, right? right? Like, we all know that from covering it. Like, if you, if you just go by staff and field and number of contacts and money, almost everybody beat the Biden campaign out, even in the primary. I mean, Buttigieg, Bernie, Warren, they all had better people. It didn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that, like, you kind of have to separate these two things out. It does matter, I think, at the margins. You have, you have maybe a better strategist. And, you know, that's how we decide our presidential elections, on the margins, right? I mean, so I think that is the the nervousness that – Biden doesn't do everything he can and he loses Wisconsin again by 20,000 votes because, you know, he didn't run a digital ad. I mean, there's no way to, like, prove this stuff out. I just think that, like, this is going to be an interesting test, again, sort of looking at can you be an inferior campaign and still win the whole thing? I don't think the Biden campaign is going to, even at the end of this, even if Biden becomes president, is going to get any any awards for being a revolutionary campaign, right? Right. They're not going to be known as like the Pluff, Axelrod, Karl Rove. It's going to be like, if Biden wins this, it's going to be because people were sick of Trump, they had enough, and he was acceptable. And that's what it's going to be about. But like that might be enough this time, right? And I think that's going to be the, the test. Of course, if he loses... Then all the points that you brought up and all the grumbling, you're going to have the Bernie people back beating their chest saying, see, we told you so. All the digital folks who say he's not running enough ads or not doing enough smart messaging, they're going to say, see, we told you so. Whether you can prove that was the reason, you, you can't. But 
that's sort of the situation we're at. I think one of the reasons, and Dave, you alluded to this, that the Democrats are nervous maybe. It's not necessarily about what they've seen thus far. Because I would say by and large, I mean, the Trump campaign still seems a little confused about how it's going to criticize Joe Biden. I mean, it really has a whole like plethora of attacks that they have yeah, tested out so them. far. they're testing them. Right, they're, they're testing them. The question is when they settle on one of them and then they start to ramp up their, you know, and, and take advantage of their significant financial advantage and Donald Trump's bully pulpit, that that sort of focused fire, whether or not the Biden campaign can stand up to it then. Now, this is something that was supposed to have already been happening. It hasn't because of the pandemic. It has bought Joe Biden time. I think it's, it's actually a fairly significant development in the campaign so far, just because the last two incumbent presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, really had started to use this time to their advantage when they ran for re-election. That's the test, right? Like that, we haven't seen the test yet. In fairness, I should say to some of Biden's critics, we really haven't seen his campaign be tested yet. And that's right. where, where a lot of the rubber is going to meet the road. Right. And we may not for a while, right? I mean, who knows when traditional campaigning is going to resume. And, you know, it may just, you know, it may be more about, you know, the fundamentals this year than, you know, than, than ever before, just because they're really, campaigns are really just so limited in what they can actually do now um, in terms of, you know, reaching voters and, you know, holding events and, and, and all of that. But, you know, I wonder if part of the issue, too, is, you know, in terms of the fundamentals, right, like things couldn't be that couldn't be much worse for Trump right now, right? Between the way the economy, right. where the economy is going, where coronavirus is going, and just the fact that it's been, you know, Democrats have had a lot of success during Trump's presidency, right? I mean, looking back to the 2018 midterms, all the special elections that have been held over the past few years, obviously the one that took place Tuesday <laughs> in California being the exception. Then you look at all of that and you look at under the hood at some of these polls and you say, wow, things are looking really rough for Trump. Then you look at the top line and it's like, oh, Biden's actually only up by a couple points in Wisconsin and some of these swing states. And obviously, you know, you'd rather be You'd rather be leading by even a small margin than than trailing. But, you know, I just wonder for a lot of Democrats, if in the back of their heads are thinking, OK, right now is a, maybe as as bad as it's going to get for Trump. And yet we're still not really beating him by that much. What's going to happen if the economy does start to improve a little bit heading into November, if if the threat of coronavirus starts to fade a little bit? That's when we you know, you need a strong Biden campaign that's ready to sort of counter, you know, counter these attacks that, that are going to be coming from Trump. Let me just say, those polls are never going to be outside the margin. Every poll yeah. we have of Michigan, I mean, maybe not Michigan, but Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, if it's more than three points, I'm shocked, and I sort of want to toss that poll out. I almost <laughs> not believe it. I mean, like, Florida, Arizona, the six main battlegrounds, we're not going to see, if someone starts to break away in those, then it's a route election, then it's over. So I don't think you can ever, I mean, mm -hmm. we're going to look at those polls, and I just don't think, I mean, if Biden is ahead by a little, that's pretty good news. I mean, if he wins Wisconsin by three, I think that's a big night for him. You know what I mean? Oh, like, oh yeah. Well, he won the presidency. Right. He, he won the presidency. It, so I It mean, might not even be that close. Right. And to get to my, <laughs> to my earlier point, like Democrats are just never going to really accept that. <laughs> and Republicans aren't either, right? Republicans are cocky. Every time I talk about a poll that shows Biden up to a Republican, they scoff and say, Oh, remember last time? Remember you guys last time hyping all those polls? I can show you 15 polls that had Hillary Clinton up by double digits in Pennsylvania. So we're sort of in this odd place where we've got no campaign, no trust over data, and sort of two hapless candidates in many ways. I mean, do you think Democrats are just destined to that for from now until November, Dave? They just will, will never believe that. Joe Biden could actually win this race, that they're all they're going to be gun shy the entire time. 
I don't think they don't believe he can win it. I just don't think they have any incentive to be public about it because they need to show urgency to their voters from now until, you know, December. There's just never going to be an underlying confidence that they want to exude. And I think they have to continue to show urgency because it's Trump's the wild card. You never know what's going to happen. And frankly, I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, the coronavirus just changed the, our world so quickly that an, another outside event that happens in September or October that we cannot envision is totally within the realm of possibility. And who knows, then maybe something makes Trump look much more appealing. I mean, I think Trump's only hope, I shouldn't say only, Trump's best hope is that you have an economic rebound come back in the fall and he can say, I built the economy once. I'm about to do it again. You do not change the driver. Like we're in a precarious situation here. The economy is starting to come back. You better stick with me and not go with the liberal Democrats because we know what they're going to do. And I'm not ruling that out anymore. I mean, like, you know, you're starting to see angst around the country about being locked down, about the effects on the economy. I know polls still show that people are prioritizing health, but like, where are we in a month on that? Where are we in two months? If people are, st are we still locked down in August? Are, are people in battleground states getting really antsy about lockdown orders? Does that help Trump, who is already saying, let's get back to work? I just think like the, the X factor, the unknown is the most dangerous factor for Biden. This is an unprecedented situation. Normally in politics in a presidential campaign, you can look to history as a guide, right? There's yeah. some sort of sense of what is to come. There is no precedent right. for this. We have no idea. The only things I think we know at, at this point with Donald Trump, that this represents a missed opportunity so far. If you look at some of the approval rating jumps that governors have had because of their response, mm -hmm. I think we can say pretty definitively at this point that Trump, at least initially, has not received that kind of bump in any way. And I do think you see in polling that people think he was slow to respond. I think everything else is is really unknown at this point. And there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns, Dave, to your point, that it's, it's, it's such an easy way to look foolish to make any big, bold predictions about how this is going to play out. And I will admit that even in the last few weeks, I had once again gotten suckered into this idea that maybe Trump's numbers were, were starting to collapse a little bit. Um, there was certainly some reporting around that. You saw the consternation around his daily press briefings. And I don't doubt for a second that his numbers were softening or that he might have a developing problem with some seniors. We do have a lot of data about that. But if you really, if you look at the head-to-head -head matchups, if you look at his approval numbers, they're not actually all that different right. than they've been mm -hmm. for the entirety of his presidency. And he can still recover. I mean, right. we've got five months yes. to go. Like by July or August, we can be in a totally different situation where maybe he's back yes. up at 45, 46, 47. I mean, now he's at 41, 43. But like, just think about six months ago before this, we thought it was going to be about Russia and Mueller and impeachment. Nobody's even talking about that anymore. So maybe his approval ratings now and his initial handling of this won't be as relevant because a bigger mm -hmm. event will supersede it. Maybe an economic comeback or maybe something terrible, like another, you know, another strain of the right. virus. I mean, there are just so many unknowns that I... <laughs> Dave, don't me that way. No, I, I know, I know. Talk I about mean, another I, strain of the this virus. This is what I think about all day when I'm in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I have nowhere to go. Dave, Dave, we need to set up more Google Hangouts among the, the four of us here <laughs> and just we can vent some of this and so it doesn't fester inside of you. Yeah. 
I'm sorry. That was that was a bit <laughs> well, of a downer, but I'm well. Uh, I mean, the unknown to your point, is like I mean, sort I think, of what I'm freaking out about, just as a human being, let alone a political, you know, analyst trying to look at this ahead. Yes. And like Trump's approval rating in May may just be completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Likely will be completely irrelevant come September. Right. And yeah, and that's where that nervousness comes from Democrats, right? It's like they know things right, right now look good for them, but they know right. that, you know, at this time, you know, four years ago or roughly four years ago, like Hillary Clinton looked to be in a really strong position exactly. against Trump, but things can change really quickly. It could be, you know, they changed, you know, basically the weekend before, the, you know, the election in 2016. So they, you know, they just right. want to make sure that all of their bases are covered, right? That like, you know, they don't, you know, pull a Hillary Clinton and like trying to expand the map, you know, kind of before locking down, you know, key battleground states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. They just, you know, they're just so nervous about that and so shell-shocked yet from 2016 and to Dave's point. It may not be until, you know, Joe Biden is sworn in in January of 2021 that they actually will will finally take a breath uh, about this election. Totally. I just think the key question moving forward is whether or not Trump's handling of the virus this year raises doubts in the minds of some voters, that he is the guy to rebuild the economy in future years. And I don't have an answer to that question, yeah. but we know that there is a majority of Americans, including some people who are not otherwise, you know, don't have a favorable disposition toward the president, who think he has been good on the economy. And the question is whether or not the fallout from this virus, concerns about how he responded to it, raise doubts that he's the guy moving forward. D- to me, that could be the whole election, mm-hmm. you know, if you're looking for one frame to try to process this with. But again, it is this huge unknown. And I almost feel like it's difficult for us to talk about it on this podcast because it is by far the most important thing in this election, but it's also by far the most unknown thing, how voters are going to process it. And, you know, anything beyond wild speculation is just hard to, to muster. Hopefully this podcast has gone a little beyond that uh, for you, the, the listener. Adam, let's transition real quick because, of course, it is not just all about the, the presidential race this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the battle for the Senate is also in play. Republicans hold a 53 to 47 majority in the, the upper chamber right now. Of course, control for the Senate is huge if Joe Biden were to become president and if he wants to get any legislation passed or if he wants to appoint a Supreme Court justice or two in at least the first two years of his presidency before an inevitable midterm backlash. The number, Adam, seems to be that if Democrats actually want to win the Senate right, they have to gain or have to win four Republican-controlled seats because everyone assumes yeah. that Doug Jones, the Democrat in Alabama who beat Roy Moore, is going to lose this year. Where, where do you think that that battle stands? Give the listener a kind of 30,000-foot view. Are Democrats going to be able to do this? What are, the, what are the odds right now? I mean, they definitely seem to have a much better chance than I think a lot of people, you know, nonpartisan analysts, Democrats, Republicans would have given them even a few months ago. You know, they've really been buoyed by some strong fundraising from their Democratic challengers in a lot of these, you know, targeted Senate races that have all of a sudden, I think, had people giving another look to, to some of these races that they thought, you know, would maybe be, you know, still kind of tilt towards Republican. Now they view them as, as sort of toss up races. And I think what we were talking about before with right now, the current political environment favoring Democrats, all of a sudden, I think the party sees a lot more of those races being in play. And all of a sudden, you know, you can start to see a couple different paths to where you get to, you know, a 50-50 split or a 51-49 control. The, the kind of, I think the big issue, though, for Democrats in terms of in their efforts to take back the Senate is that there really aren't a lot of slam dunks for them. 
on the board, right? Like Doug Jones is almost like a slam dunk for Republicans, right? Like, I mean, things would have to go horribly wrong, I think, for them not to win back that Alabama seat this fall. But then, you, you know, if you look at, you know, uh, we'll take, you know, Cook Political Report, for instance, right now they have four Republican held seats that are toss ups. You have Arizona, Colorado, Maine, North Carolina. You know, none of those are really strong Democratic states. You expect, you know, no matter what the candidates are, no matter what the environment is, they'd be able to take that back. You know, Cory Gardner in Colorado is maybe the most vulnerable, but, you know, that's a strong Republican incumbent there. You know, Democrats have a lot of optimism about winning yet another Arizona Senate seat after they flipped one in 2018. Then you look at, you know, Susan Collins in Maine, you know, has certainly riled up a lot of opposition on the left these past few years, particularly during the the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. And then uh, as you guys talked about a lot about last week, you have North Carolina, right? A, you know, kind of a barely a top tier presidential battleground state probably tilts a little bit to the Republicans. That's going to be one one of the, the kind of top tier states. But, you know, you're just taking those four, you know, if those are the four that they want to flip in order to, to gain control. Right. I mean, you know, none of those are are, are easy at, at this point. So I think, you know, we're almost in a situation where I think almost all of these seats would have to flip at once. Right. It's almost tough to, to think of a scenario where like, oh, well, you know, maybe they win just just one of these or just two of these. So I think, you know, number one is, you know, Biden, you know, is going to have to win the White House. Right. There's I don't really see a scenario where the Dem- Democrats take back the Senate where Trump is, is winning re-election, right? So, so you got to start with that point. Part, part of that is they literally would have to win one yes. extra, uh, yes, one additional exactly. seat because then right. they wouldn't have the tiebreaker vote. But for all practical purposes, no. Yes, they would not. So, right. So it's already got to be a good night for, for Democrats, to, for the Senate to be in play. But, and it probably has to be a, a great night, I think, for, for them to flip the chamber. But but it's definitely, I think, I think both parties would agree it's a lot more in play today than it was maybe even a, a month or two ago. Yeah. I mean, two quick dynamics, I mean, to keep an eye out. One, there was a Senate race in Montana, actually, where Democrats convinced the sitting governor, Steve Bullock, who had run for president, to actually run for Senate. Not seen as one of those top four races for Democrats. But look, Montana does have a history of electing Democratic senators. It is by no means going to be easy. He's running against the Republican incumbent, Steve Daines, in a state that Donald Trump is almost assuredly going to win. But not an impossibility. Also, just this idea, Susan Collins has been able to be a Republican in an otherwise slightly left-leaning state in Maine for for decades, is her own personal brand and reputation enough to, to hold off? Even though a lot of moderate voters in that state who have turned against Donald Trump, she's never really had difficult re-elections in the past. By every indication, she is going to have a difficult re-election this time. Dave, before we close out here, I mean, it, it's hard not to notice that two of the states we're talking about here, the Democrats absolutely have to win, Arizona and North Carolina. I mean, these are states we've been talking about almost yeah. this entire century for Democrats as ones that, you know, whether or not demography is destiny. Right. And whether or not these states are eventually going to start drifting enough toward the Democratic Party. Is 2020 really the year that that could happen? I think so. I'm a little probably more bullish than Adam is on where where Democrats stand in Senate control. Just talking to to Democrats in Arizona this week and and reporting and and even Republicans, they are very bullish on Mark Kelly being the next senator there. I mean, I talked to a Republican who told me that Trump is going to have to win Arizona by four to five points for her to eke it out, that he will run that much further in front of her. Hmm. So I would put Arizona and then I'd put Colorado and lean Democrat. I would go beyond Cook Report and I think those are going to be likely Democratic pickups right now, standing where we are. And then I I put like the three Senate seats, North Carolina, Maine, and Montana in sort of the – sort of the second tier where it's going to be tougher races for Democrats, but 
but very doable. And there's your five. I mean, they need they need everything to go right. Right. But there's your five. I would also throw one more. A wild card. I think it's a bigger, bigger reach. But Democrats are starting to spend money there, and it's Iowa. Uh, Joni Ernst's numbers have started to soften a bit. Right. Now, look, if, if Joni Ernst is losing, I think it's, a, you know, Republicans are getting wiped out in places that we don't even know. So I'm not trying to stress that she's in danger. I'm just saying it's been flagged to me that, like, Democrats are spending money there, which means they are taking it seriously, which means they're not just like waving the flag. It's not a false. It's not a false flag. But Arizona and Colorado, I just think those are like you sort of go west to east and it gets I think those are the Democratic bulwarks out there. Yeah. Um, you know, Susan Collins, that's going to be tough. I mean, she's she's a survivor, although this year, I mean, she's got an opponent raising big money against her and, they, and people really want to beat her after Kavanaugh. And North Carolina may go with the presidential wins. I mean, if if Biden is able to pull it out, maybe Tillis goes down. And and Montana, I think Bullock is an underrated candidate. He has outperformed president. You know, like he won his gubernatorial race when Trump was winning Montana big. So I would not underplay him. He's a name brand in that state. He's almost an incumbent running in Montana. So I think Montana is going to end up being a big Senate battleground that could end up being the majority maker. And I would and I would just quickly throw in as well. I mean, I think, you know, Democrats are also feeling a lot better about their chances in Georgia yeah. where there are two U.S. Senate seats up, both because it seems like that state is looking just to be a lot more competitive at the fundamental level. Right. I mean, the past couple of weeks, there have been some internal Republican polls that have been leaked showing Biden and Trump basically neck and neck in the state. And of course, that's going to have huge effects down ballot. And, and of course, one of those uh, Senate races is featuring Kelly Loeffler, and she's been undergoing a lot of scrutiny for, for selling stocks amid the pandemic. So, so I think there are going to be a lot of opportunities for, for Democrats, for sure, to get to that you know, to get to that majority. It just is sort of a question of, you know, how strong do the fundamentals really have to be right. in their favor to kind of sweep all of those races? There is, when you look at the map, a huge pool of second or maybe even third tier Democratic opportunities that if right. the yeah. bottom were truly to fall out for Donald Trump and the Republicans, the Democrats, Senate Democrats could have not just a big night, but right. a huge night. Dave, you mentioned Iowa, Georgia, mm -hmm. there's a Texas Senate race. Believe it or not, some prognosticators have actually even questioned South Carolina, where Oof. Lindsey Graham is running for re-election. <laughs> still a very safe, well, still I mean, a very what safe is happening seat if that for, for the GOP <laughs> overall. Going on if they lose, if Republicans lose a seat. <laughs> at that South point, Carolina. Doug Jones maybe will be able to hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then he's he's running. I think for Doug Jones might be. Time. Yeah, Democrats. Yeah, Democrats actually have a super majority in the Senate <laughs> at that point. That's how good a night they, they had. OK, real, real quick, let's move on to the tell me something I don't know segment where Adam and Dave are going to tell you, the listener, something fresh or original out of their notebook. Dave, you're up first. So I was parsing through the CNN poll, which I didn't love because it put all the battleground states into one basket and did a <laughs> poll. And like, that's not how we determine God, our elections. That. So I get frustrated by it. But. I did, some of the internals were, were, were interesting and of note, and the one that really stuck out to me is they tested nine metrics between Trump and Biden, and there were only two that Trump came out ahead. And I think this perfectly encapsulates his, his general election messaging. The one was they favor Trump over Biden over, on the economy, and the second one is they believe that Trump has more stamina than, than Biden. And I think that's why you see the messaging we do, right? This is the Trump general election message. I'm the best to handle the economy. And it's Sleepy Joe. He's lost a step. And I think that is what you're going to see. No matter how many other things they test, I think that is what Trump 
we'll come back to in the fall and debates and the final weeks of the campaign against Biden. Interesting. Bold prediction there. I did hear from a Democrat who's done some focus groups that they that voters had concerns Biden was not decisive enough as a mm. leader. And this person saw it as linking directly back to those attacks as Sleepy right. Joe and questions about his, his fitness and his age. So something to, to, to keep tabs on. Adam, what do you got? Yeah, I wanted to flag uh, a polling nugget as well. And I think kind of as we've entered this general election phase, a lot has been made about Biden's advantage with seniors. That's been a, you know, a big flip from 16 to 20 uh, that Biden is doing much better with, with seniors than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. But I'm digging into the latest uh, Marquette poll in Wisconsin there's another key voting block that has swung towards the Democrats. And it's one that actually Dave flagged uh, around the time we relaunched this podcast last November. He did a big deep dive into white working class women and how that is going to be kind of a big swing group in 2020. It's one that went big for, for Trump in 2016, but in the midterms and, and since that last election, they've shown some signs of drifting to the Democrats. In this Marquette poll, they are now firmly in Biden's camp. Uh, Biden was leading with white women without college degrees by a 46 to 38 margin in that poll. If you look back at the exit polls in Wisconsin in 2016, Trump was up by 16 points, 56 to 40. So quite a big swing. If Biden is able to hold that sort of advantage with white non-college women in those key Rust Belt states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, I think you know it's going to be really tough for for, for Trump to, to to win those states. So I think that's going to be a key group to watch if they stick with Biden. Between now and November. Okay, so just one quick nugget for me talking with an official at a Democratic super PAC. Something that is obvious when you think about it, but I had not considered ad rates, both digital and on TV, have plummeted mm. recently. The economic collapse, unfortunately, has made it such that there's a lot less advertising, so naturally supply and demand. Prices fall. Uh, and it's one reason you see a lot of robust advertising from Democratic super PACs right now uh, and could see even more advertising in the future particularly as campaigns try to figure out what to do when they can't actually run a field operation at a time of the pandemic. So just one little nugget uh, there for the listener. Adam and Dave, hey, I enjoyed the uh, discussion today. Thank you guys both for coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Fun. Adam, I, uh, I hope you start to try to regrow your beard after this. I'm a little disappointed that you <laughs> ah, shaved your playoff beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check back with me maybe like after Memorial Day. We'll, we'll see where it stands. All right. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and of course, our executive producer, David Cobra. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.